0: pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love, and my, my wor- may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, amen. So did you hear it? Did you hear that one line in the middle of this mystical story of Jesus' ascension to God? It seems that the living, risen Jesus appears to the disciples one last time. They, of course, don't know it's one last time. And yet again, in that moment of revelation, as they have always when the risen Christ has appeared to them, they worship as awe and wonder likely overtake them. But then we hear the words that don't seem to fit in the story. But some doubted. And rather than causing us to pause, perhaps we should celebrate this. Because who among us has not doubted? Doubted that God can do a new thing? Doubted the mystical story of Jesus levitating to heaven? Doubted the resurrection? Doubted that God even exists? Surely, All of us, at one time or another, have had some doubts about all of this. And if so, welcome to the club. After all, the Apostle Thomas, who said he actually had to see and touch the risen Christ, or he wouldn't believe, became known as the great doubter. But no more so than Philip. You know, Philip, who said to Jesus when he was instructed to go feed the people, said, where will we get enough bread to feed them? For God's sake, you know. (laughs) And who said, show us God, and we will be satisfied. Here, Jesus is standing right before them, and Philip says, show us God, and we will be satisfied. Well, you know, I still say that Thomas is the patron saint of progressive Christians, and I might throw Philip in there with him, because as progressive Christians, we have a value around asking questions. We have a value around people with curious minds. We have a value around conversation that unleashes the spirit in our midst. That's who we are. So what then are we to say about all of this? I love the opening of Diana Butler Bass's reflection on this story in her essay this week on this text. She explains that I'm tired of flying Jesus. I think my resistance to Jesus going up into the clouds on ascension has something to do with the years I spent in evangelicalism. Back then, we didn't talk about Jesus going up into the clouds. We looked forward to Jesus coming down from out of the clouds and us going up to meet him in the air. Up, down, or in between, all this heavenly elevator coming and going doesn't make much sense as a historical account of a future event, does it? But, she explains, it does make sense as a mystical experience. Consider for a moment how throughout our Hebrew and New Testament scriptures, how often mystical events take place on mountains. I mean, on Mount Ararat. The ark rests on the mountain, and Noah and his family look upon a new creation as the waters reside. Abram, soon to be called Abraham, looked out to a mountain and saw three figures coming toward his tent, three figures that would say that he and his wife, as aged as they were, We're going to have a son. And so Abram would have an heir. And we as Christians, of course, have seen those three persons, those three strangers, as the manifestation of God in three persons, God and Christ and Spirit. Though that is not at all, I think, what the Hebrew people thought. Well, and then there's Moses who first encountered God on a mountain in a tree that burned but was not consumed, and heard the words, tell Pharaoh, I am who I am, has sent you. That from Hebrew to English actually translates better as, I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, has sent you. Wow, listen to the movement in all of that, right? Right? the living movement in that statement. And later, the mount, on the mountain, in the wilderness, Moses converses with God, receives the Ten Commandments, and brings them to the people. So Moses is known, comes to be known in the Hebrew people as the lawgiver, right? And then just before Lent, each year, we hear that mystical story of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration where he is wrapped in a cloud along with the manifestations of Elijah, who is considered the highest of the prophets, and Moses, the giver of the law, because the law and the prophets will continue to exist, right? According to Jesus. And uh, Jesus is wrapped in this, and we hear the words, the disciples who are present that day hear the words, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him, echoing the words said, at his baptism. So now, is it any wonder that Jesus brings these disciples to a mountain? The holy place of God. This is in all our scriptures where God shows up, right? Well, God shows up in a lot of other places, right? In, in the poor, in the hungry, in the marginalized. I mean, even in a, in a rabbi called Nicodemus. So, God shows up everywhere, but the mystical encounters or mountain-driven. And here is Jesus with these disciples on the mountain that he has directed them to outside of Galilee, the holy place of God, where he gives them instructions. And as as he departs from them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God and of the Christ and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You might. That command word we talked about last Sunday has multiple meanings. Everything I have taught you. Everything you have witnessed in me. Go, therefore, into the world and baptize. Baptize. And, and I know and you know that people have used this to exclude people, right? But it really isn't intended that way, going into all the world. And, and I would say revealing, as Jesus revealed to us, the love of a gracious and generous God. Now, after Jesus says this to them, Go, therefore, baptize all over the world in my name. Teach them to obey all the things I have taught you. Is it any wonder that some doubted? Me? You mean me? I I don't think you mean me. Are you kidding me? And did you think for a moment that this living, risen Christ, ascending to God, thought they wouldn't have any doubts? That they would get it right immediately? (laughs) I mean, they had not gotten it right so far. Why would they get it right now? (laughs) So I don't think Jesus has any expectations that this is going to be an automatic thing, that they're going to get it. So Jesus' last words to them are a promise. If you're having those doubts, remember, I am with you always the end of the age I told you that our friend Philip Gully spoke at our South Central Conference uh, United Church of Christ annual, annual meeting this weekend so uh, in his keynote address uh, well first of all he's the funniest preacher I've ever heard in my life in, in his keynote address he talked about his frustration with churches that say everyone's welcome here. Everyone. In fact, his issue is not so much with people who say it, but with churches that put it on their side. Everyone's welcome here. Because his experience has been that the churches he's gone into who say that don't actually mean it. That everyone is welcome here is just a thing a phrase that churches have used for years but but you know if you're queer yeah maybe not so much or if you have a mental health issue if you're struggling with a relationship maybe not so much we don't we don't really want to talk about that here right And so he was talking about that. Now, you have to know that for the United Church of Christ, that's a hard thing to hear. Because, you know, our big thing is, whoever you are, wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And, you know, we actually, I think, we say it, but I think we try to live it. But, you know, his question was, is everybody really welcome? Even for churches that try to live it, try to proclaim it? Are all really welcomed and should all be really welcomed? His point was that we have softened our commitment to our faith. Now, he spent quite a bit of time, that I don't have today, unpacking that for us. As he went on, it became clear that all can be welcome, but what does it mean to be a member of a faith community? What does it really mean to love like Jesus? What does that really mean? If we claim the Christian faith and follow Jesus, shouldn't it matter how we speak, how we act? Isn't living into our faith about transformation? You know, we're never all that we should be or all that we might be, but isn't it about Being on a journey toward transformation? And isn't it that a process toward transformation is important more than an automatic, you come on in. That you don't just get a ticket in, because, and and for some of us that's really hard to talk about, because we got tickets out, right? So this is a and he kept saying, I have wrestled with this for years. And so this didn't just come come about easily for him. He raised the question of shouldn't we expect more, especially in our country where there is such vitriol and hatred toward each other. Shouldn't we expect more out of a faith comi- out of a faith community that commits itself to following in the way of Jesus? Shouldn't we expect people to commit to ministry, to worship, to generosity, to study, and so on, and mission? Might we expect that people would wonder, would question, be curious about life and faith? Wouldn't we expect that people with divergent views might be able to sit together at a table and not call each other names? I mean, aren't we committed to being people who love deeply, Sacrificially, and reflect that in how we treat other people? I got to thinking the other day about um, a time when I was a pastor and I had to make a very difficult decision to release somebody from employment. They got fired. And how a few months later I got a letter saying that they forgave me. And I was a little interested in that. Because they never said, please forgive me. And that if I'm going to confront somebody who's hurt me, maybe my first words need to be, forgive me. Forgive my failures that helped to create this division in us, that helped to create the separation in us, that has caused us to reach this point, right? So... Uh, Philip Gulley suggested maybe we need to change our vows of membership. He gave an so you know, that we are people who take the Bible seriously, but not literally. That's not who we are. And you're welcome to be here with us, but that's not who we are. Uh, maybe we say um, that our faith impacts how we understand our role in community. You may understand your role in community different, and that's fine, but this is who we are. And then that um, maybe our faith is a bit political. I know everybody says I didn't come to church to hear politics, but that, that's not it. I mean, I sat in a, gun, uh, a class this morning on, on gun violence, and we talked about what can we do to make, make a statement, a physical manifestation and statement of who we are as a church related to gun violence. You know, and and how do we do that, you know? And so, uh, how do we... How do we do this? How do we be a community that melds our faith with our political climate in a way that is gracious and generous and supportive? Well... um, Philip Gully, as he is prone to do, made an example of a person in his community who came saying that he wanted to become a part of their Quaker meeting. And how then Philip Gully announced to the meeting that this man was going to join their meeting. And after he did that, some people came to him and said, Yeah, do, are you, do you know that he's a member of the Ku Klux Klan? Now, Philip Gully's from Indiana, and you may not know, but in the second wave of Uh, conservatism in the United States, long after the Civil War, Indiana became a a huge hotbed for the Ku Klux Klan. So Philip went to this man and said, are you a member of the Ku Klux Klan? And the man said, well, yes, I am. And Philip said to him, well, then you have to withdraw your membership to the KKK or you can't be a member at our Quaker meeting. You can meet with us, but you can't be a member. Yet, So the man met with them and uh, one day came to Philip and said, I want to go give my my membership back. I have to take my membership card back and give it to the KKK. I want to be done with that. I want to renounce my membership. But can you come with me? (laughs) And so Philip did. And the man turned in the card. And after a while, because as Philip said... You aren't ready yet. The man became a member of the Quaker meeting later, and and what Philip said that instead of having all are welcome here, that maybe we should have on our sign. Um, what was it? Um, you may be welcome here. It depends. <laughs> you may be welcome here. It depends. He's advocating for transformative life. So, if at this moment you're having your doubts about all of this, remember, just as the disciples following the resurrection weren't ready yet, and even after 40 days with the resurrected, risen Christ, they still weren't ready, and even then waited 10 more days for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost because they weren't ready yet, Relationship with God is transformational. Transformation given to us by God. Following Jesus, attaching one's heart to the Holy Spirit takes time. And then still sometimes we doubt. This scripture has formed our understanding of our name, New Church. It is found in the Revelation of John. It says, And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. It's who we are at New Church. We keep talking about God is continually making all things new, including you and me. But as my friend and clergy colleague, Reverend Vicki Kemper, reminded me recently, that often we confuse the word new with the word instant. In our instant culture, we expect changes immediately. We expect newness to happen suddenly. Diet. I want it tomorrow. Exercise. Exercise. I want to be a marathon runner tomorrow. You know, success. I want it now. But that is likely an inaccurate way of understanding transformation. The kind of thinking that leads us to unfulfilled hope. That could cause us to lose faith. So maybe being made new, being transformed, is not instantaneous but incremental. The decisions made yesterday by our South Central Conference annual gathering will not change financial challenges we face overnight. There's still a lot of work to do, including reconciling with our siblings who didn't want that to happen. The transformational changes of which Philip Gully spoke, you may be welcome, but not yet. Let's see how we might change over time into more winsome, loving, tender, strong people, loving like Jesus. Turns out that transformation is more methodical than dramatic. Perhaps that is why Christ stayed with the disciples for 40 days. Before ascending to heaven, they needed a little bit more time to embrace this miracle of resurrection. Isn't it interesting that people who study uh, habits, that they, they study how people develop habits, say it takes about six weeks to have a habit become ingrained, which is about 40 to 42 days. Transformation happening through one faithful person, one healed wound, one forgiven enemy. One ongoing justice action. One act of love at a time. I have two friends who are bike riders. Oh, not just casual bike riders. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. Some of you know them, Kathy Langlots and Chris Starr. No, these friends have a deep commitment to riding their bikes. One, and they do it all year long, in order for this one moment. One rides each year in the annual AIDS life cycle ride in San Francisco. The other rides in the annual bike ride for multiple sclerosis in various places around Texas. You probably know that there is no known cure for either of these diseases. And both yet have made advances in research over the last few years. You may remember that Dr. Anthony Fauci's research centered on HIV AIDS. And today, while there is no known cure for it, People today who have contracted HIV/AIDS are living longer, healthier lives because of people like Dr. Fauci, who spent years studying this and developing medicine for it, and live far longer than people did during the crisis of the 1980s and 90s. And you may have heard that there is now a new drug that helps people with MS. Uh, who have relapsing MS, people like my sister Kay, there is now a, a drug that is reducing how often those relapses are happening. It doesn't cure it, but it means quality of life for people with relapsing MS, and longer life is happening. And still, my two friends continue to ride. They ride, and they keep at it, and they raise money every year for research, For the sake of life and healing, they keep at it. Because both are faithful Christians who believe that God is making all things new. And they will ride as long as it takes or as long as they can. Do you think that there are times when they have doubted that their efforts would help in any way at all? Do you think that there are times they have doubted that God would do a new thing? Of course they have. But this isn't it. What is it is how we can participate in God making of a new heaven and a new earth with hearts and minds open and ever faithful to a vision we can never see. All for the sake of love and healing. This is how God works in and through each of us. Even the people that are tough to love. That God continues to work, making us and this sweet world of ours new over and over. For as long as it takes, that is what God will do. Because the promise is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Amen.